Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm well, David. My uh, the pool at my in my uh, community complex is reopened, so it's a little bit cold still because they don't heat it uh, over the summer, which is good. It doesn't need it. Uh, a little bit cold, but I didn't get the wetsuit out. Um, I didn't need that, but it's nice to to have that facility back. I've missed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good to get a return to some sort of normalcy, especially if that normalcy entails physical activity. I think that absolutely. Uh, People have been wasting away in their homes. You know, I'm, I know that the sales of weights went through the roof when the pandemic hit because I'm one of the people who tried to buy them. But I wonder, there's just something about going to a space to exercise that is very important, I think. It's whatever your routine has been, I think, you know, re- getting past the the barriers, the 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 reasons not to, you know, I mean, we always sort of, a couple of the people in my community are are professional athletes or trainers. And, you know, they always remind me that, you know, (laughs) it isn't any easier for them. You know, they, they have to get the discipline happening and it, it is even harder because, you know, that's kind of where their livelihood depends. And it, uh, it takes that sort of real determination. So anything that can reinforce routines as opposed to, you know, challenging them. Uh, and I think people are, are very grateful for kind of a, a little bit of a return to, uh, you know, some sort of manageable program. Yeah, exactly. Well, before we get into the show, I would like to do my weekly call to action. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. If you wouldn't mind, please do share this as far and wide as you possibly can. That's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, reviews on iTunes, sharing with close friends, having a listening party while you garden, whatever you choose to do. But uh, we've been having a lot of success with that, so we definitely appreciate your efforts in that regard. Uh, If you do have any questions or comments, in fact, Chris and I have a pretty amazing comment that we're going to be discussing right after this call to action. But if you have any of those, please do send them to thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, other than that, Chris, you have anything you want to add? No, just to reinforce that idea of, of feedback uh, from people, which is really appreciated. It it, uh, it continues and advances the discussion and our investigations. It uh, it builds community. I uh, yesterday morning uh, appeared at the. National Council of Teachers of English Convention, which is a very big event normally. About 20,000 people show up live. This was just all virtual, of course. Um, And uh, it was very pleasing to do an early Saturday morning session. And of course, people are, you know, chiming in from everywhere for this year. Um, But to get some really good feedback and some very interesting questions. So I think that we all need to remember that our questions really matter, that, that if it's worth, you know, if we feel the people we're addressing are, are worth the time and the energy, uh, it, it matters, you know, it really does. And it, it, it opens new windows of thought, which is kind of the purpose of, of the whole deal. So thank you. Indeed. Indeed. On that note, I would like to open this episode with listener mail. And I'd like for this to be a recurring segment. So again, please do send in as much feedback as you'd like. And Chris and I will go through and select the ones that we want to address directly, because I think the conversational aspect of this is really cool. 
uh, Chris and I don't do a whole ton of research for the show, but we do have sort of general ideas of what we're going to talk about. And I think that these are great centering devices for conversation and great callbacks to earlier episodes as well. So I really like the um, community aspect of doing that. So we have a listener mail all the way from New Zealand and... This listener is uh, responding directly to our Sacred Mechanics episode, which if you'll remember it during Sacred Mechanics, we talked uh, specifically about tribal initiation rites and um, uh, some of the the lack of initiation rites that Western culture uh, does, does currently not have. Would you say that's an accurate summation of that episode? It's a big episode. Yeah, big yeah. Episodes. It was it was way it was part of our program of of trying to get a better insight into our culture, uh, Western society, by looking at some other very different types of cultures around the world. And in that episode, we looked very closely at uh, New Guinea, and in particular the Sepik River uh, initiation rites for young males which involves a very painful process of scarification. So it's much more intense than tattoos. But the idea is that um, with very sharp stones uh, on the back and shoulders, the young men are um, scarred in such a way as to resemble crocodiles, which is kind of the totem animal around there, um, totem reptile. And they're, uh, they're very, very uh, prolific, the crocodiles. There's no... Uh, there's no great surprise why that's one of the magical creatures mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. is summoned forth in these human ceremonies. Right, right. So in that episode, you bring up uh, um, McDowell, Christina McDowell. Is that Christina that- Dodwell? Yes, Dodwell. Christina Dodwell. Dodwell. Yes. Yeah, okay. a British explorer adventurer. Christina Dodwell. Okay, excellent. And in that, you are speaking to the fact that she participated as a female in a primarily male ceremony. And the question that we were asking there is, is it proper or is it correct for uh, somebody to participate in something like that um, while kind of using a westernized sort of uh, feminist idea of breaking down barriers and going sort of where no woman has gone before? Is that is that also fair? I want to make sure yeah, I have this right well before said. I get started. No, I think okay. that's that's well positioned. Okay. Well, this listener, in a very kind uh, ways, p- is pushing back on that in a very interesting manner. I think so. I'll read this passage, and then there's one other passage that I want to get to. It's a uh, it's a very in depth email, but I thought that these were the selections. Okay. So in the episode, you give an example of having an opportunity in Vanuatu to participate in a in a ceremony not the obviously not the scarification ceremony but something along the same lines an initiation ceremony for for males right and you and you declined uh because you said you know this just isn't my thing right it's not my not my place essentially so Correct. The, the the listener begins the difference in the stories chris tells about the tribes allowing or disallowing participation in tribal rites and initiations seems to me to be with the people themselves In Papua New Guinea, they allowed the female explorer to be part of their initiation. In Vanuatu, they asked Chris not to be in their kava ceremony. Simple. We listen. We respect the boundaries that are set. The genderedness of the female explorer seems trans to me in terms of cultural tribal roles. She is not tending to the home fires. She is out there, solo, finding new to her territories to discover. 
Perhaps the men of the tribe recognize something that is less visible to you slash us. That she is not a woman in the same sense as the women in their living group. This is because the role she has taken, and that therefore the relevance of the male ritual is to her way of being in the world, rather than her physical body. I think also of the waves of transgender initiations that are going on currently in our own culture. Agreed we are a culture lost, but also in the swirling cycles of the evolution of humanity, I understand that most of us now are most certainly post-tribal, and that I am personally enriched for the lack of definition in many of these roles. It's a paradox. Because I am saddened that I don't have a culture of midwifery around me, but I am grateful that I don't only do women's work. So she's saying some very interesting things here, and I kind of wanted to get your take on this response. Well, I thought it was a phenomenally thoughtful uh, response with a lot of substance to it. And I, I really, I, I completely um, agree to some extent. I, I think that the trans element, the, 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 ver- the, the word form that that took for me is in, in the case of Christina Dodwell is, is sort of transgressive. Uh, she's coming in from another point of view. Uh, relative to uh, the Sepik River people, which I think is exactly what the situation was. So it is a very uh, special situation, and I think that um, our listeners' angle on that is 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 very well and very subtly phrased. So I, I do think there's um, a very valid point of view there. Uh, the other thing is, and I did try to... Um, in the original episode, you know, Dodwell was uh, a young woman at the time. This was at the start of her career. And uh, she didn't phrase herself ever as an anthropologist uh, in the sense of some a special duty of care to the people that she, you know, she was traveling and looking after herself in a, in a solo survival sort of mode. So there is some slack, I think, that can be cut there. Um, I very much like the idea that's mentioned of the paradox of the longing for some of the cultural structure, uh, but resisting cultural rigidity and enjoying uh, the cultural flexibility we have today. And I honestly think that's a takeoff point for um, an episode unto itself, really, because I think we're all in that same boat in some ways that we we are enjoying the freedoms that some relaxed social mores and conventions allow us. But on the other hand, I think people resonated with our idea of the lack of initiation rights, the lack of, of structured milestones uh, in, our, in our lives. And um, I mean, I know a lot of people my age, and I, and I certainly feel this way, of, we kind of got to this point and we're thinking, this doesn't have anywhere near the level of structure that, that, we seem to, you know, intuit in our parents' lives, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I don't think we're imagining that. I, I really don't. I think there's, there's plain and simply less structure. And some of that is good, as our listener points out, and some of it we, we kind of have a little, I don't know, a feeling of melancholy, a feeling of loss and disorientation. So I think mm-hmm. there was some really good um, points of view uh, put forward in that, that note to us. And, and we really appreciate that level of thinking um, because there are no cut and dry uh, answers. And in, in the case of my situation, you know, I declined that 
one uh, ceremonial opportunity, but uh, not always, not others. And I might have done something very differently, you know, in a different situation. So they're just, with this level of complexity, there's just no simple, rigid solution that's going to always hold good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's worth looking at it from the different angles. I am interested by what I believe she's saying here, which is kind of that if the if the tribe itself experiences or expresses its agency by allowing uh, Dodwell to participate in this ritual, that in and of itself speaks to a kind of thing that they're that they're seeing in her that other people can't see. I wonder about that. I do. You know, I'm a big fan of looking at the agency of. Um, people, we talked about that very specifically on our last episode pertaining to homeless people. Uh, I also do wonder, however, if, you know, as we said in the homeless episode, right, agency doesn't uh, sort of preclude you from sort of making mistakes or, or doing something sort of incorrect, even within your own structure. Oh, absolutely. And I think that dynamic is very, very active in, in the Dodwell story. She devotes quite a, a, a good section of the book to it. It was obviously an important sort of experience. And if you're familiar with the writing style in that book, you also would be aware that there, there are some important things that she's not saying for whatever reason. And, and I don't have any more light to shed on that. But it, it's quite apparent that it's a very edited uh, life experience sort of narrative. Um, it's it's not the kind of thing where we're getting you know every dot connected at all. And I think that it's great and absolutely essential. Not just great; it's essential to uh, be thinking in terms of the agency of everyone that we know and meet. But certainly um, to not deny that in the you know in the context of indigenous people in remote situations. But nonetheless, I mean, she's traveling with a British passport. Uh, She is white. She's a female. Uh, There are some leverage points there that she was using, um, you know, that I think uh, also needed to be considered in that -hmm. that story, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So all that is to say, um, please do keep sending us your thoughts. Uh, This was a great addition to the sacred mechanics episode um if i thought it would do any good i would actually go back and add that on to the end of it but of course you know for those of you who've been listening since the beginning uh you would you would miss that so we're just going to address these things in the episodes as they come along uh keep we're going to keep having this evolving conversation but on that note we're going to have a little bit of a different conversation today uh so what are we going to talk about chris uh, we're going to try to uh, round off our, our meditation, discussion, analysis, interrogation of the five great Western notions of progress. We've talked about the mythic religious uh, aspect, which sort of underlies all of them. That, that's been one of our sort of uh, theses along the way. And I, I think we've kind of demonstrated uh, why that is, is a fair argument to make. The second was the biological level of progress, namely through the theory of evolution. Technological progress, which is often what people think of first. And we've referred to Edward T. Hall, the anthropologist's notion of extensions. 
human extensions being our technological innovations and also our systems, our institutions, things that, that work is in what Freud called a prosthetic sense. They extend human capability. And Hall's view, and, and many other people believe, that our extensions have kind of taken on as a curious life of their own, or at least an evolutionary stream that seems to run independent and to some extent parallel, but also in conflict with uh, the biological uh, patterns of evolution. And this is one of the reasons why we have this red queen hysteria of, of trying to keep pace with, with modern society. You know, everyone's talking about the, you know, time shortage and how out of breath we all are and how much information overload there is. All of these sort of pressures of essentially a, a technological capitalistic uh, evolutionary stream that's running on its own. And then we looked at the cultural revolution, uh, big cultural revolutions, which I think we made some interesting sort of ground on that. Um, and I, I came across a, a, a line from, uh, he's actually an artist that I really admire, the great Robert Irwin, who's still alive with us in his 90s now, installation artist who's um, featured in Lawrence Weschler's absolutely gorgeous book, Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. I think Lawrence Weschler is one of our finest uh, nonfiction writers, and I such incredibly clear prose. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, I just, just had to throw gorgeous. that in there. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 really referring to him strongly in my uh, textbook for Rutledge Press because I'm just he's his writing has meant a great deal to me, and my students have always responded to it. But Irwin says at one point, and of course he's not just thinking about art here; he's thinking about revolutions in the bigger sense that we we talked about. But he says very simply, even revolutions don't cause change. Change causes revolution. And David, I think that kind of is, was uh, uh, a good gloss on your position on the cultural revolution side, which we covered last time in preparation for looking downscale at the social progress idea. Yes, yes. Do you think that's a fair summation of your point of view on cultural revolutions? Oh, absolutely. I think that yeah. they, yeah, they I necessarily, so yeah. And I would, I would specify that very, like in, on our times, I would very much emphasize that it's cult, that it's, I'm sorry, that it is technological change that spurs cultural and social revolution. Right. Which in, 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 in the sciences, you know, they talk about tool-based revolutions, which we're in now with digital tech versus conceptual uh, right. idea-based revolutions. And I, I think that was an, an interesting point to come out of kind of, because cultural revolutions, we're talking about the French, the American Revolution, China, Russia, you know, the, they're very big, murky, violent, uh, mass events by definition, which are very difficult to get any kind of fair aerial view of. Mm-hmm. I think no matter who's writing the history, I think they're just complicated. They are. And it, it it's, I think, serves a good uh, intellectual clarity purpose to think about them as responses to, as symptoms and effects of causes, not only as great causes themselves. And oftentimes I think it's better maybe just to think of them as effects. And uh, that that's kind of what the Irwin quotation gets to, I think. So, mm-hmm. 
that was kind of a, a starting point. And I guess we're really now trying to get to not only a little bit more of, of the present tense uh, sense of, of how tense things are with, mm-hmm. with social progress and uh, the idea of progressivism, but also to, to try to put that into a larger historical framework because there's surely nothing in American history that is more prominent than the idea of, of progressivism and social reform. Mm-hmm. I mean, many people have claimed that, um, and I think we'll, we'll sort of filter uh, back through that. And I have a few things to, uh, certainly a few things to say about that. But I think that, um, do you want to start us off with, with getting sort of focused on the idea of, of social progress, that sure. myth yeah, I would like to get started on that. And I think that it's a good idea to segue from the cultural to the social. Um, I think that that kind of makes sense in this continuum that we're talking about. And I would like to start with an article that you wrote in 2012 for The Rumpus, the online magazine. Uh, and it's called Lost in Time and Out of Season, Growing Up in 1960s Berkeley. Could you set the the stage for this, uh, for this article, what were you trying to do with it? What's its major thesis? And then I'll come in with this uh, big old banger of a quote that I got here. Okay, cool. Well, the main title, Lost in Time and Out of Season, is a line from a Doors song. Uh, so I hear Jim Morrison's voice in that. One of the, the great poets of that period, uh, whether or not you think he's great, he was considered great within that frame, and he was certainly a master sloganeer of the era. But um, growing up in, in, in the heart of the counterculture, so to speak, you know, the, I was exposed as a very young child to, to some of the traumatic sides of it. The National Guard, tear gas, demonstrations, the Black Panthers, the Hells Angels, and the huge impact at street level of the drug culture. And I was very, very young. And I, I had grown up sort of hearing from people 10, 12 years older, a kind of very rose-colored glasses look at this, you know, because they were older, they could, you know, they were participating in the marches. They felt, you know, that was something they were doing at, in their formative uh, late teen young adult phase. And I get why that was important. But for me, I saw a real kind of nightmare unfolding. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly lived through the aftermath of, of the drug phase when it really percolated down to people my age. And um, there were a lot of real you know, horror stories that, that came out of that. So I I'm, was not... Uh, predisposed to just say this was a great, great thing. I mean, I think the counterculture at its best still failed in many ways. I think it was uh, subsumed by commercialism, for one thing. But I think in the heart of the moment, in the thick of those conflicts, you know, coming out of the free speech movement on the Cal Berkeley campus, uh, I was really too young to sort of see, but I I heard about the the aftershocks. And I'm always of the view that anything that scares kids and dogs, I have some doubts about, you know? <laughs> I, um, I don't trust anybody who my dog growls at. It's just see? a thing. It's just it, a it, thing. 
it, it, you know, I, I think, and once you're down with that idea, nothing will change you. So those were the kinds of thoughts that I had in my mind writing that article. I was really uh, writing to a couple of uh, really established uh, cultural historians and, and writers and academics who I've known for years who were in that generation ahead of me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they were teenagers when I was, you know, a kid. And their view, I really felt that needed to be challenged in some way. So that's kind of the setup. Okay. How old are you around this time? Oh, like five to seven, you know? Five to seven. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, here is this Maybe 10, depending on how long you extend it. But I I feel like I kind of come to, you know, some sort of independence, you know, sort of in the mid to late seventies. So. I'd missed, I really missed the action by 10 years in that sense. Gotcha. Okay. So this is Chris writing. I've since spoken with many older white people who rhapsodize in achingly fond terms about that golden time of change and rebellion. I've always marveled at their lack of awareness of how frightening and demented that era and its denizens seemed to children of the day. I remember a sense of pure horror and revulsion in certain scenes Telegraph Avenue turning into a street of gibbering hobos, muttering panhandlers, tear gas, clashes with the police. The world on fire, as Jim Morrison said. The romance of that moment in the past has always struck me as a travesty, only rivaled by the the idiocy and piggery of the forces of authority the best of those people felt locked in conflict with. From ideology to savage beatings with batons to the making of bombs. Colorful and energized, yes, but it was also an ugly lost time in truth, and the crisis was only further dramatized by the obscene contrast on other levels, the endless ooze of bubblegum music, the, co- the relentless onslaught of television advertising and brilliantly colored plastic toys, the forced injections of fast food, games and entertainment to not just dull but to outright obliterate the mind. All while some of the most heinous crimes in American history were being perpetrated by respected leaders, pool halls were being boarded up, donut carts loaded up on trucks and taken to the dump, where the seagulls roosted and huge brown rats festered and nibbled, not to mention characters out of a John Dillinger, Neil Cassidy, Phantom Hinterland, like Charles Manson, rolling into town to play guitar on the streets for spare change and the chance to seduce some rich white girl who hated her father for being rich and white. On a dime, the world had morphed and then was begged for by some displaced Pennsylvanian ex-Lutheran who'd blown his mind on drugs he couldn't even pronounce, looking for the kingdom of heaven in a trash can and pissing in his pants without knowing. Paints a little bit of a picture. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you for reading that, David. I I haven't sort of revisited that in a long time, but you can see, I think, that that it, it affected me very deeply. And... Um, I really did have a kind of pent-up sense that 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 era and all that it means uh, has been misrepresented in many ways. And and I kind of feel that this, uh, although I wrote this, you know, back in 2012, I think it it, it does speak to some of the issues today. And I I have had, you know, many of my students in, in, you know, eager... Uh, and open-handed, open-hearted, you know, questionings ask me, you know, how does today's woke culture 
uh, compared to the counterculture. And so I kind of do go back in my mind to, to that particular uh, essay, you know? Yeah. And so the thing that you point out the most, I think, is the is the ugliness of humanity in general. Now, we're not a nihilistic podcast, and I'm not suggesting that people are all ugly all the time, but people are people, you know? They have uh, bodies that do things like sweat and excrete, and they have minds that do things like like plot and get greedy, you know, that commit crimes. And I think anytime you're in the midst of a social revolution uh, or a social change, a social, a, a social shift, I think that those base elements of humanity get transmuted onto whatever the ideology of the day is. So today you mentioned, you know, sort of woke culture, right? Well, there's nothing really wrong with, I guess, wokeness on its surface if what we're talking about is a simple recognition of, you know, social mores and, and being polite, being manners, being mannered rather. I've always thought that it was perfectly fine to treat people with respect and, you know, not to use an Oklahomaism, you know, show your ass to people. You've, you've right. heard that one, right? Um, <laughs> but, um, but of course, you know, my theory is that human beings at their worst are motivated by power first, and then a subset of that is money, right? It usually starts with money, and then once they have enough of the money, it moves on to things like power. The thing is, is that when you have a group of people who have no intention or belief that they could ever make the kind of money to get them to power, they start to look for power in ways that are available to them. So these ideological beliefs, these social changes, these kind of shifting relationships between people uh, become the sites of pretty nasty, ugly power struggles. And then that gets exacerbated ever further by an ever-present phantom technocratic, techno-capitalist class that really wants to both maintain control and sell things to people. Hi, everybody, and thanks so much for listening. If you want to finish the rest of this episode, that can be found over at nocountrypod.podbean.com. Once again, that is nocountrypod.podbean.com. This will probably be the last episode that I post on the JDO feed. We're going to be doing some JDO show stuff here pretty soon that'll be cool. Uh, So stick around. You don't have to unsubscribe from this one, but I wanted to make sure that the JDO show and No Country remain their own separate feeds. Thanks again so much for listening and uh, see you next time.